Now, let me ask you this this morning. I, I don't mean to touch on a sore spot for anybody, but have you ever been late somewhere and it wasn't your fault? Has that ever happened to you? Maybe, maybe I'm talking about very recent history for some of you. Um, now, what I don't mean when I ask this question, I can mean a lot of things. What I don't mean is what a lot of you think. Well, it wasn't my fault. It was, it was my hairdryer. It was the traffic. It was, I'm not talking about that. Here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a very specific scenario. And again, if this stirs up bitterness in any of you, I apologize in advance. But I'm talking about this scenario. When, you know, there have been times in our marriage where we have been late to places. There have been a few times like that. And there have been some of those times, I would say, many of those times where one of us was ready and one of us was still getting ready. And one of us is in the living room wearing a groove in the carpet with the watch or the phone or something looking at the time and, you know, I know we're late. I know we're late. I know we're late. And the other one is doing everything that they can to get ready, but just not ready yet. Um, when you have children, this multiplies. <laughs> because, you know, three out of four, you're still late, you know? And so what, what goes through your head when you're the one, I can only imagine, you know, as much as Dana has waited for me, I can only imagine what goes through her head <laughs> as I'm finishing my hair, you know? What goes through your head when someone is late and they're holding you up and you wish they would be ready when your clock, your alarm has gone off and it's time to go and you know it's time to go and you're ready to go, but they're not is very simple. Don't they care? Do they not care about the stress they're putting on my life? Does it not matter to them? Do they just not care about me at all? Is this, what is this? This is inconsideration. Maybe you're one of those people that, you know, you have a, a time when you expect your, your grown-up kids to, to get home, to get back. And they're not back. And there's no phone call. And you're waiting for them. Isn't that the same thought that runs through your head? Like, what, do they not understand? Do they not care about my stress level at all? Do they not care about what's going on inside of me? They just don't care enough to even... How hard is it to pick up the phone and call, right? It's the game that gets played in our minds. When, when someone is late, when someone makes us wait... It has a way of suggesting that thought, they don't care about me. It doesn't matter to them, my experience. Especially when we think it would be easy for them not to be late. And so we have a strong sense that our timing is right and their timing is wrong. And what I want to say today as we get to John chapter 11 is that we all have those thoughts with God too. When God seems to not arrive in time, to avert disaster. Even though there's a lot of times that he does arrive in time to avert disaster, I would suggest to you that there are many, many times in your life where God has diverted disaster from your life and you didn't even know about it. You may have called it, you know, a flat tire. Or you might have called it, you know, my alarm clock didn't go off or whatever. And you didn't realize that God was protecting you. You, just, you were just frustrated. So there have been many times where God showed up. But there are those times where the, the clock in your head is ticking and you know something's got to get done and you've cried out to God and he just doesn't show up in time. 
And the same thought goes through your head. Why didn't he show up? It doesn't seem like it would be too hard for an almighty God to have been on time. We pray and we pray for God to work, but he doesn't work. What does that say to you? What do you think about God in that moment? When you ask for an answer, some solution, before the bottom falls out of your life, before bills go unpaid, before your groceries are all used up, and nothing happens, what does that mean? When you just know that God, the all-powerful God, can heal, and you've cried out for him to heal, but he doesn't. When you believe that God can be the answer to your loneliness or your pain, and it just seems to go on and on no matter how many times you ask God to step in, he just seems to be late. He just seems to be waiting for no reason. What does it mean? And so I'm hoping that as we look at the beginning of this story, we will answer or start to answer some of those questions. I am praying that this will challenge and stretch your faith in God. The story that we have here, we're going to just look at the start of it. It really takes the whole chapter of John chapter 11. And I hope that as we look at this, in the dark moments of your life, that the the spot where you have to choose what you're going to think, you're going to have to choose what you believe this means about God and about you. I hope that what we look at today gives you a legitimate choice other than the normal human choices. We'll see what this waiting in John chapter 11 did mean and what it didn't mean. And hopefully we can make the connection to our own lives. So start with me in John 11. We're going to go down eventually uh, all the way down to verse 16. But we're going to start just verses 1 through 6. Here we go. Verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now laid sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Stayed where he was for two more days. All right, so we have the start of this story. The story about Lazarus. And and if you don't know the whole story, I'm not going to spoil it for you this morning, but I will tell you that this is a very famous story and it's the last uh, kind of normal life story about Jesus before we get to chapter 12 and his triumphal entry and the final week of his life and and all that pours out in the remainder of the book of John. It's kind of the, the culmination, the peak of all the things that Jesus did. And so we have Lazarus. He is sick. The, the, the chapter begins by telling us he is sick. He is the brother of Mary and Martha. Now, in the book of John, we have not heard about Mary or Martha or Lazarus at this point. So they are introduced here. However, there is some assumed familiarity with these characters because John's gospel is the last gospel written. Mark's gospel is the first gospel written, and I happen to believe it's the best gospel. (laughs) 
But Mark's gospel is the first one written probably. Then Matthew and Luke wrote as well. And so those stories about Mary and Martha have been floating around for a while. They're out there. These are known friends of Jesus. Okay, And yet there's still some explanation that they live in Bethany, that they are connected, Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus. And so Mary, and Mary is further identified here, this was the one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet. Now, just a little side note here. We have not heard about this story yet in the book of John. As a matter of fact, this story is going to take place in the next chapter, in John chapter 12. So John is referring to something he will tell them later, but hasn't told them yet. And yet there are other accounts of it in Matthew and Mark. And so Mary... This, this woman who clearly loves Jesus because she did this thing with the perfume and wiped his uh, feet with her hair. This Mary, her brother, is sick. And Jesus knows him well. The moment of crisis has arrived. Lazarus is sick. What you're going to see is that this is not a cold. He's not sick like maybe you were sick last week. He's deathly sick. He's terminally sick. He's sick because he's going to die. It is a crisis. And they recognize this. They look at their brother. They see him suffering. They see him withering and dying. And they recognize that something has to be done. Time is running out. Jesus has got to be summoned. Because if he comes, he can heal him. So they send to Jesus. And they say this in verse 3. Lord The one you love is sick. The one you love is sick. So they send to Jesus. Why do they send to Jesus? Well, number one, they send to Jesus because they believe who he is. They believe that Jesus can heal their brother. They've seen him heal many. They believe he's the son of God. They have faith. And so this request is not given because they are testing him. We've seen the spiritual leaders test him. Show us a sign so we can believe. They already believe. So they're saying, since we believe, since we know you're the one who can answer this, we trust you. Come, please help us. It is the way that many of us go to God with the burdens of our lives. We go in faith. We go recognizing you're the only one who can help me. And so I go to you and I say, please Help me. We want some answered prayer. That the God who is able to do anything will answer, will intervene. For Mary and Martha, this simply meant, what are they asking God to do? What are they asking Jesus to do? Come, heal him so he doesn't die. That's all. He's done it to many, many people. This is not something abnormal. They believe he can. As a matter of fact, Jesus has virtually eliminated disease and sickness in the nation of Israel. There are many passages in the Gospels where it says that he healed everybody in the village who was sick. He stayed all day and healed everybody they brought to him. There's not one indication of somebody who came to Jesus to get healed and didn't get healed. That's pretty powerful stuff. And so Jesus is going around over three years and healing people. And so this is not like some special request. They're not asking for Jesus to do beyond what he's done for many, many other people. They're just saying, please do it for us too. Now's the time when we need you for us. And maybe you've gone to God like that. You said, this thing in my life, this this situation, I've seen you answer it for other people. I've seen you do amazing, incredible things. And so I'm just saying, Would you do it for me too? 
You go in faith. You go with good heart. You go with, with, with you know, just normal uh, faith before God. God, would you please step in here? Nothing wrong with this request at all. And the simple request is based, based on a deeper faith. He says, they say to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. They don't just believe Jesus is able. They also believe Jesus loves him, that Jesus would want to heal him. They're not like, please, God, prove your love. They're like, God, we know you love, so heal. Come do this. It is the logical connection that we make, humanly speaking, that if you love, you will be on time. You won't be late. You'll come through. It only makes sense to us that love, which wants the good of another, and in a matter of life and death here, love would want to save his life. Entirely logical, entirely human. Since you love him, you'll want to heal him before he dies from sickness. I think we would all agree with that. And Jesus responds. And he responds in a way that seems to say, okay. So what he says is, this sickness will not end in death. Very interesting what Jesus says. This sickness will not end in death. If you were the messenger who came to Jesus and said, Lord, the one you love is sick, and he said to you, which is probably, he's probably talking to the messenger. He's probably sending a message back to Mary and Martha through the messenger. This is his response. And what he says to them is, this sickness will not end in death. Go tell them that. They would understand that like you and I would understand that to say, he's not going to die. Pretty cool, right? Oh, good, I got great news. I'm going to take it back. But he doesn't stop there. What he says is, no, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified in it. He starts talking about this glory stuff. He says it won't end in death, and then he moves right on to say that what's going to happen is going to be amazing and is going to bring glory to God. It's not just going to be run-of-the-mill, no-big-deal stuff. It's going to be stuff that brings glory, that, that, that blows people's mind, that, that people can't get their head around, that this has to be God. It's got to be something that only God could do, and it's going to be something that shines a big spotlight on God's power and God's work and God's love and God's faithfulness in this world. And so Jesus says, this sickness won't end in death. Go tell Mary and Martha, this sickness will not end. But tell them that God will be glorified in it. And so he answers with something that seems reassuring, yet he includes something they probably don't even get, that this is for God's glory and for God's Son. Now, I, I mention that because later on, when Jesus gets to the sisters, he says, didn't I tell you? So I want you to put a little note in your head there for when we get to that later on. When Jesus says to them, didn't I tell you? He's talking about this, this message he sent to them. Okay? So now verse 5 then, then makes this statement. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This is the statement that's made. Jesus loves them. In case you were wondering, in case it wasn't clear, or in case it won't be clear, I want you to understand this, that Jesus loves this family. He loves the one who's sick, and he loves the one who are wringing their hands with with stress, with grief, with sorrow over his illness. He loves them. He does not have ill will towards them or malice towards them. He does not have indifference towards them. This is hugely important, folks. 
When you've prayed and prayed and you've asked God to work and it seems like he doesn't show up, it doesn't mean he doesn't care. It doesn't mean he's not listening. It doesn't mean that you don't matter. It doesn't mean that you're in trouble and you need to suffer. That's what it says here is before it gets to what happens, it says Jesus loved them because it won't be clear in what he does. So you're just going to have to know that he loves them before we talk about what he does. He's not indifferent. He's not callous. He doesn't take glee in their pain or suffering. And he doesn't in yours either. He loves you. He wants your good. And then he does this. Verse 6. When he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. It's life and death, Lord. You have to come heal him. And instead of running, Jesus sits still. Why in the world would Jesus not go? Later, we find out that Lazarus has died. And we find out that Lazarus has been dead for four days by the time Jesus arrives. Which probably means that when this message gets to Jesus, he's already dead. And Jesus says, this won't end in death. They're too late getting to Jesus. But Jesus waits longer. Lazarus is probably already dead. How do we compute this? How do we understand Jesus waiting when everything about this seems like rush, seems like crisis, seems like get there before it's too late? But notice what it would seem like to us what it often seems like, that Jesus chose not to act. Instead, winds up showing up late. But it very clearly in this passage does not mean that Jesus is indifferent, that Jesus doesn't care. It says he loved them. Means that their suffering, their concern, their anxiety, their grief is all normal and it's not meaningless to Jesus. It means that he doesn't refuse to help. It forces us, as we look at this action, this choice of Jesus, nobody makes him stay. He chooses to stay, not just for 30 minutes or for two hours, but for two days. When someone whose life and death is hanging in the balance, he chooses to wait. You have to confront a soul-stretching truth, and I pray that you will. It says this, Love doesn't always fix things. Let me say that again. Love doesn't always fix things. You are tempted to believe in your humanity that if you love someone, you will make things good for them. You will fix it for them. But notice, Jesus loves them, but he doesn't fix it for them. Did you see that? Now, is Jesus wrong? Is he having a bad day? Is he off in his love? Is today just not feeling it? Is that what it is? If Jesus is God, if God is love, and Jesus in love, specific love for them, chooses not to fix this for them, then should we be challenged about what love is and what love is not? Love doesn't always make us comfortable and happy. 
either of us, as because love wants ultimate good. Love has an economy. Love says, here's some good that I would like to see happen, but I'm not going to sacrifice ultimate good for intermediate good. I'm not going to sacrifice what will be good for you in the long run, in eternity, for what will make you feel better right now. Do you get that? So when your kids come home from school upset about the bully at school, what do you do? You call up the teachers, you call up the principals, you call up their parents, you go into school and you beat up the little kid, right? (laughs) Isn't that what you do? If you love them, that's what you do, right? That's not what Jesus did, is it? Jesus did not remove what would stretch their soul and grow their faith because that was a higher good than life and death. When you look at your kids and the challenges they face, do you want to just fix it for them so that you feel like you're loving them? Or do you look at them and say, this is God's opportunity for you to grow here. Now grow. I used to face this all the time as a youth pastor. I I bet you Dave hears this all the time too. Well, my kid would come out, but they don't feel comfortable in youth group. And I would go, I'd be like, take a breath, Mark. Because I would say to them, how do you think they're going to get comfortable? I thought, I'm sorry, I thought this was an age where they were supposed to grow. Maybe you need to challenge them to say, let's walk by faith here. Let's go forward. Is God put us in this church? Has God given a youth program for your spiritual benefit? Then let's walk by faith. Maybe it's not there for you. Maybe it's there for you to serve someone else. How about that? We have human compassions and human tendencies, and that's all fine and good, and God understands it. But listen, do not judge God by our limited understanding of what is good. God will always choose your ultimate good over your good right now. And when you look at it, what you do is you judge God by that, and you say, God, you must not love me. You must not care about me because I'm uncomfortable, because this stinks, and I don't like it. So what does this mean? I prayed to you, God, why didn't you show up? What it meant for Lazarus and Mary and Martha, who are going to have those questions in a few verses, is I love you enough to let you feel this pain. I love you enough to wait and let Lazarus die. Do we love like God does? Love waits. Love doesn't try to remove people from God's purpose and God's plan, even when it's hard and painful. Matter of fact, what God promises is not that you will avoid all pain in your life. As a matter of fact, He promises that you probably will lay down your life for Him, doesn't He? But what He says is, I'll be with you through it. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will walk with you through it. And we'll see that as the story unfolds. Love seeks the best that is only possible when lives that we love are under God's direction and submitted to God's plan. And so as you face that question, why doesn't God answer my prayers? Is it that he can't do anything? No, God can do anything. So it's not that he can't do it. Is it that he's too far away, that he doesn't listen, that he doesn't care? No, it's not that. When God is late, 
what seems like late to us. When God waits, it's because he has more good in his plan than can be accomplished by being on time. Do you believe that? Will you trust that? All right, so now let's pick it up and see what happens. Verse 7 down to verse 10, here's what it says. Then, after two days, he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you are going back there? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. All right, so after two days, Jesus says to his disciples, Let's go. Let's get up and go. Now, if you thought that the shocking statement was that Jesus stayed for two days, this is also a shocking statement to his disciples. Because when Jesus says, let's go, let's go to, to Lazarus, let's go to Mary and Martha, let's go where they are, his disciples go, wait, 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 wait. They want to kill you there. You, you don't want to go back to Judea. Last time we were there, remember the stones that they picked up? Remember they were going to throw them at you? Remember how they hated you? How they want to put you to death? Why would you go back there, Jesus? That makes no sense. Why would you go there? They're shocked. And they have reason to be shocked. This seems like a needless risk for them to take. Do you remember the story back in John chapter 5 where Jesus healed somebody that wasn't even there? He just went, he's okay. They're like, hey, could we do that again? (laughs) Let's do the one. I got an idea, Jesus. Ooh, call on me. Listen, let's do the one where you just like from here, just make him better over there. Let's do that. Can we do that? So they're struggling with what's going on here. We don't understand this. Why would you be returning? Here's why. Because Jesus has a chance to do something that will resonate in eternity. He sees an opportunity. So many times as God calls us forward in our life, all we see is risk. And we live in the focus of risk. And there's plenty to risk for the cause of Christ. I in no way minimize the fact that God may call you to lay down very precious things for his cause. Absolutely. But are you so fixated on the risk that you miss the eternal opportunity? Jesus says, yeah, they want to kill me. Okay, but this is my chance to do something the Father has asked me to do that will not just speak to these people, but for thousands of years will speak to people. All we see is risk in the call of God. What if I speak up for Christ at school? What if I say something to people, my neighbors, and I get some kind of pain in return. I get rejection. I get ridicule. I get embarrassed because I don't know the answer to their question. What if I speak up for Christ and it's risky? What if I trust God? What if I say, God, do whatever you want to do in my life and he puts me on a plan that isn't fun, that I don't like? What if I let go of something and later on I wish I'd had it? I'd held on to it. What if I give up control to God of my life and it's awful? And he does stuff I hate. Risk, risk. Jesus isn't blind to the risk. His disciples are focused on the risk. Jesus is focused on the opportunity. So Jesus could accomplish the same thing from far away, except Jesus isn't trying to accomplish what they think he's trying to accomplish. They would say, well, you can do the healing thing from here. But Jesus is like, it's not about the healing thing. I want to accomplish more than healing Lazarus. And that requires me 
to go to Bethany. It requires me to put myself there. Jesus has more in mind than the simple outcome of Lazarus not dying. And so Jesus says this, and it kind of feels like a riddle, this thing about daylight and nighttime. And basically what he's saying to them is, it's still daytime. Listen, don't think that I'm you know, stupid here. I see what's happening. I see clearly it's daytime. And it's not night yet. It's not time for me to be gone. It's, it's still daytime. And so I know what I'm doing. I'm going to take this opportunity because it's daytime. It's still a chance. And so what are you doing with the opportunities that Jesus gives you? Are you resenting them? Are you longing for the day when that opportunity is gone and it's not a burden on you anymore? Are you wasting it, throwing it away on stuff you won't remember or stuff that won't matter? When we ask God to act in our lives, when we ask Him to to show up, do we only want God to act on the scale of what we see, heal Lazarus, or do we want Him to open up opportunities that we might never see unless He opened them up in front of us? Would we be willing for God to do God-sized stuff in our lives because we're willing to take on opportunities that seem crazy, risky. The Bible calls that redeeming opportunities. When was the last time you redeemed an opportunity? All right, before we finish this today and, and kind of get on to next week, we're going to take this last chunk here, verse 11 to 16. Here's what it says. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. The experience of God waiting, God being late, can make you feel hopeless. And that's exactly what the disciples felt here. They felt hopeless. What starts up here, Jesus says to them, we're going to go now. And they misunderstand. He says, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they're like, good, sleep's what he needs. Let, you know, let's get some chicken soup over there. He needs that stuff. Tell him to rest. This is great. You don't even need to go. He's asleep. They totally misunderstand him. They, they think that they know what he means, but they miss the reality of what he's saying. So verse 14, Jesus tells them plainly. So listen, if you're like, man, I don't know what God's telling me. You're in good company. You've got like the 12 apostles who were like, sleep is great. And then Jesus is like, listen, he's dead, okay? <laughs> I was trying to like say it nicely, but you made me say it this way. Lazarus is dead, okay? He has come. Now, who told Jesus that Lazarus was dead? Yeah, nobody on earth, he didn't get a message. Jesus knew, right? This is, this is the deity of Christ showing up. Jesus knew. The Father had revealed it to him. The Spirit had produced it in him. He knew that Lazarus was dead, even though he had no reason humanly to know that. He knows that he's dead. He waited two days, and it suggests that Jesus is very much on purpose allowing Lazarus' death to set up what's about to happen. And what he says in verse 15 is this, I am glad for your sake that I wasn't there so that you may believe. Now, don't misunderstand this. He's not saying I'm glad Lazarus is dead. I'm glad so many people are hurting and mourning. I'm glad for all the trauma this is. He's not saying that. But he's saying 
when I, when I look at the bigger picture here, I am glad for what this is going to produce in you, that it wasn't made simple and easy because this is big enough that even you will get it. Did you ever think that maybe sometimes some of the reason God waits is because if he, he came through, we, we still wouldn't get it. It has to be bigger than that. Maybe we're a little bit too dense for God to just make it simple. We're not paying attention. We're not tuned in. We just are too careless and callous in our interaction with God. And so God waits. You know, maybe there's a, a bill and you know it's coming and, and you don't know what you're going to do to pay it and you're waiting and you can put it out of your mind and you can put it out of your mind until the deadline shows up. Now you can't put it out of your mind anymore. Now you can't ignore it. Now you can't bypass it. Now you have to face it. And how are you going to face it? Faith or fear? Right? Stress or peace? What are you going to do here? How are you going to react? And God turns up the volume on it so that it will get through, so that eternal purposes and eternal uh, work can get done in your soul. Jesus is preparing his disciples for their role in the kingdom. Do you know that really within a few months of this, thousands of people are going to put their faith in Jesus Christ because of these guys who couldn't understand what Jesus was talking about, about Lazarus? Jesus says, I'm glad for this event because of what it will do in you. It will form you into the men you need to be for the cause of Christ. Because in a few months, the cause of Christ is going to depend on these men to take the truths that they learn in these, in these circumstances, in these experiences, and pass them on to people in power by the power of the Spirit of God. They've got to get a hold of these things. And the way they get a hold of them is by facing their questions, facing the pain, waiting for God, by having their understanding challenged. And that's the same way God prepares you. Did you know that God is forming you? in your pain. God is forming you in the weight. I would say this to you. Faith is essential for your connection with God. Do you understand that? God didn't come to you. He's not going to knock on your door this afternoon and say, hi, I'm God and let's talk. You have, the only way you interact with God is by faith. A stronger faith is what you need for the life God has for you. Do you know the way that your faith gets stronger, the, the, the most stronger, the most effectively? Waiting and still believing. Perseverance is faith stretched out over time. I can believe, but then tomorrow something doesn't happen and now it's like, now I don't know if I still believe. Continuing to believe while you wait is the way that your faith gets stretched. Will you let God stretch your faith? We are formed for our purpose in doubts, in fears, in struggles, and questions. And so today I ask you, will you let God stretch both you and your capacity to trust Him in the waiting? In the unexpected responses, in the times where God doesn't seem to come through, in the places where you suffer loss that you don't know if you'll survive, and pain that seems too much to bear, in the struggle that doesn't seem to end, will you keep trusting Him? Will you let Him stretch your faith? Or will you give in to the idea that God doesn't care, that God won't act, that God isn't good, that God doesn't love you? For the disciples, they weren't there yet. Thomas, his reaction called Didymus, which simply means twin. It's not, no big deal to that. Thomas, you might recognize Thomas. He's doubting Thomas. 
I won't believe until I put my fingers in his hands and my hand in his side. Doubting Thomas, right? But he's not a coward because he says, all right, he's going. Let's go die with him. He's hopeless, but he's still acting in faith, isn't he? I don't know what good it'll do. Well, I kind of know what it'll do. It'll be the end of all of us. Let's go. Let's go do this. Now, maybe that's as much faith as you can muster. You can't believe everything's going to be okay. God's not asking you to believe everything's be okay. He's asking you to follow him. And so Thomas goes here like this. I don't know. Probably death. Let's go. When God puts in front of you a path that is hard, a path that looks destructive, a path that seems like no good can come of this, do you go, well, it's the path you gave me, so here I go. Because I don't know what I see, but I know who I'm following. So I'm going to walk by faith. If you say wait, I'm going to wait. If you say serve, I'm going to serve. If you say speak, I'm going to speak. If you say be quiet, I'm going to be quiet. Simple faith to say, let's go. So we're going to close with a song today that kind of just sums that up. And I would invite you, as this song is sung, to to use this as an opportunity for you to respond to the Spirit. If Jesus is holding back, if He's late in your life, if stuff hasn't happened that you wish had, that you've been praying for for a long time, the invitation is for you to trust Him in this. Can love wait and still be love? Can it? Can love feel late and still be love? Can love see you through pain and suffering instead of around it? Can love see you through it instead of around it and still be love? That's what God does, isn't it? He doesn't take you out of it. He walks with you through it. And so today, do you trust your sense of timing or God's? Do you trust what you think is the right moment? or the end of your time, or do you trust that God is absolutely faithful and absolutely right in what He has chosen to do and when He has chosen to do it? I challenge you today, if you're waiting, to put your trust again fully, completely in your Heavenly Father.